Hello and welcome to our series of podcasts on mental health interventions for refugee children. My name is Esther Schroeder and I'm a doctor doing research in refugee health at the University of Oxford. Across this series we cover assessments, treatments and home and school interventions by talking to experts in these fields. Today we're talking about family, housing and the community and how that can impact on the mental health of refugee children. I'm talking to three experts today. Dr Aoife O'Higgins is a researcher on children in care at the University of Oxford with previous work as a practitioner working with refugee children and families. Associate Professor Mina Fazel is a child psychiatrist and researcher here at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford. And Dr Katie Robjant is a consultant clinical psychologist specialising in working with vulnerable migrants in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for Vivo International and the University of Constance. So we're going to start by talking about family. Family is important to all children, whether they are with their family or not, and the state of their family can have a big impact on the mental health for that child. So Mina and Katie are going to talk about the impact of parents' mental health and the family on a refugee child, and also some of the family interventions that might be available. Parents are an incredibly important buffer for mental health problems for every child, but in particular with refugee children, thinking about the number of potentially unstabilising experiences they've gone through, moving home, moving school, all these components of the experience can be supported and buffered by parents. But these are parents who often are experiencing incredibly difficult experiences themselves. So when thinking about the mental health needs of refugee children, we can't do this well unless we think much broader about the environment in which that child is being raised. If they're with their family, be that immediate biological parents or extended family structures, that whole structure needs to be incorporated into our perception of what that child needs and the overall care structure available to them. For example, parents might be suffering from their own mental health problems. There's reasonably good evidence to show that if a parent is suffering from the consequences of exposure to traumatic events, then children are very likely to also have, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder. That makes sense because they're likely to have been exposed to similar events. because of the proximity. But you know, if a parent is depressed, if a parent is suffering from anxiety, these will also have a potential impact on children. So when thinking about the needs of children, we need to also think, how can we be helping their parents? Another problem that can often happen within families is that children can end up forced into a position of acting as interpreter for other family members. And obviously this should never happen within a professional setting, but even in terms of going to the supermarket or asking for directions or helping the family to navigate around the the new accommodation or the new area that they're living, um, it can often be the case that children who of course pick up language much more quickly than their parents end up in this role. And this affects the, the power dynamics within the family and the power status and can leave parents feeling even more worthless and helpless um, and feeling trapped as if you know they they are responsible for being unable to care for their family in the new context and this this is a uh, can be experienced by by children as an extra burden or an extra difficulty and worry for for their parents 
Thinking about broader interventions, I do think that family interventions are important. So this can be school-based supports facilitating, for example, positive parenting. There's reasonably good evidence to show that helping parents parent in a manner that you know is less conducive to discord in the family might be helpful. And these are skills that every parent needs. Uh, but when you've moved culture, and you might have children who are assimilating better in the new culture, who've learnt the language better, new dynamics can come into the home relationships. That can be facilitated um, through interventions that have a family-type perspective. So parenting interventions, group interventions of parents, just keeping the parents in mind and as part of the responsibility of your work, I think will be an important first step. Protective factors include things like peer relationships, feeling welcome in schools, having the support of teachers, living in adequate accommodation, be that with their family or if they're in care, more often with a foster care. Um, supportive home environment and parental involvement are really, really key protective factors for children in the general population as well as for refugee children. And of course, where families are experiencing significant difficulties or stressful life events themselves, that's going to impede their ability to support their children and that might put them at risk. As Aoife has just talked about, Adequate accommodation can be a protective factor for children and their families when arriving in the new host country. Myself, I've done some research on temporary refugee housing in Berlin, Germany. What we found there is that the design of the housing can have a big impact on the elements of identity as well as family functioning. For instance, housing that didn't have facilities for cooking was difficult for some mothers as it challenged their identity as a mother and caregiver and they felt that they're not able to provide culturally appropriate food for their children. Similarly, not having access to the internet in this housing was not only bad for the children trying to do homework and integrate into their new school, but it also limited these families' links to their relatives and their communities who are elsewhere. Not all children arrive with their parents. Unaccompanied children have a different experience to those children arriving with their families, as Katie and Aoife explain. The children who are unaccompanied are obviously particularly vulnerable and often feel completely isolated and alone, as well as grieving the loss of their family and concerns over missing relatives. And, you know, they, they can be among the most vulnerable in the population. But I think it's also important to remember that those who are supported by their family are also potentially in a vulnerable position. They may be caring or living with parents who are struggling psychologically with the aftermath of their own experiences, um, having to adapt to the new context involving all of those stresses that I've already mentioned, and likely experiencing a loss of status as well, especially where they're in situations where they had previously worked and been the head of the household and suddenly found, find themselves in, in the position of being unable to work and unable to provide for their family. So this loss of social status, of course, impacts on the whole family and their therefore the children as well. And children can be affected adversely by their parents' mental health problems. In terms of unaccompanied minors, my research found that young people who entered care earlier did better in their education at age 16. Those who were in foster or kinship care did better than young people who were in independent or semi-independent accommodation. 
young people, as we might suspect, young people who had lower social emotional difficulties or fewer behavioral difficulties did better in school, as well as young people who were placed in mainstream schools. So young people who were in mainstream schools did better than young people who were in any kind of alternative or specialized education. And finally, unaccompanied minors experienced quite a lot of school disruption. So they changed schools quite a lot. And that might just represent the transition from alternative provision where they're learning English before they're able to go into mainstream school. But those young people who experienced more school changes had more difficulties in their exams. It's important to say that this research isn't experimental and is it's longitudinal but it is observational and therefore we can't claim any kind of impact. So we can't say that change in school or more educational, more emotional difficulties impacts on education, but there's certainly a strong association there. For older refugee children, the wider community also influences their mental health and the ease of them integrating into a new country. As Aoife explains, we as societies have to think about how our attitudes affect refugee children. Aoife also talks about how important it is to realise, like all young people, refugee children are their own individual people and don't and shouldn't fit into expectations that we might have. I think the host community plays an important role in refugee children's integration and that that plays quite an important role in their long-term well-being. In the UK, overall, the discourse on teenagers is quite negative and the discourse around refugees, immigrants and new arrivals is quite negative. But that really changes with time and geography. So a few years ago when I was a practitioner and I worked with refugee children in London, I think we were at an all-time low in terms of our attitudes to immigrants and attitudes to teenagers. And young people that I worked with talked about what they saw in the media and the messages they saw in the media and they felt very frustrated that they were being misrepresented in the media. I think that discourse has slightly changed with the so-called refugee crisis which peaked in 2015 and I'm sure your listeners will be very familiar with that image of Alan Kurdi washed up on the beach and that really resonated with a lot of people for better or for worse and in Oxford for example in 2015 there were a number of demonstrations where the local community was saying that they wanted to welcome more refugees and they were willing as a community to provide support for refugees who might be resettled. Oxford and Oxfordshire, the local authority, have volunteered to take a number of families through the resettlement scheme and that may or may not be as a result of the community having a very, or certainly expressing, a very positive attitude to refugees. So our attitudes to refugee children generally as a society tend to be quite positive. However, that does come with expectations about how these children will behave. For example, we expect refugee children to be vulnerable and we expect them to behave in particular ways as a consequence. Generally, that means we expect them to be quite needy, for want of a better word, and vulnerable in terms of their mental health. Now, that might well reflect the reality for these children, but I think it's very important to have a more nuanced understanding of who they might be, how we understand their well-being, and particularly how we understand their vulnerability. Vulnerability really should be understood as more of a dynamic and fluid concept so that in certain circumstances, yes, refugee children will be exceptionally vulnerable, but you might also see them as exceptionally resilient children. You know, many of these children will have seen and experienced events 
that put them at enormous risk of very poor outcomes. And in fact, many of them go on to do exceptionally well. These young people aren't blank slates who come in need of our assistance. They have ideas about what they want to do. They have ideas about who they want to be. And they know, to a certain extent, what their needs are. I think that as a society and as practitioners, we're not very good at understanding the tension between the vulnerability and the agency of these young people. I remember a young person I worked with a few years ago, for example, who was a young Palestinian man who was in care. He wasn't doing very well in his education and he was determined to work. And the only work he could find was late evenings. And social services really felt that a young refugee child who's in care should not be working late. And I remember the social worker saying to me, this leads me to believe that he may be older than he's saying. And if he doesn't stop working, we're likely to reassess his age. And that has very serious consequences for these young people in terms of their rights and entitlement, but also in terms of their self-efficacy, their well-being, their sense of identity and their sense of self. I have also seen written assessments by social workers which say this young person did not show sufficient deference to the social worker. They didn't cry when we expected them to cry. And important decisions are made about provision and these young people's needs based on these assessments. So really understanding what vulnerability means and the fact that young people have agency is really important in terms of society's expectations of these young people, how we welcome them, all the way down to how we assess these young people's needs and how we provide for them. What a great way to end today's podcast. Food for Thought, not about how refugee children can be supported in their mental health, but how we ourselves can change our thinking and behaviour. The next episode will be about the school environment for refugee children.